It was a brilliant business opportunity and the businessman knew exactly how to maximise the returns and more than that, would make an excellent franchise investment. So he carefully produced a franchise instruction manual. He patented all the ideas and devised a couple of training packages to go with it. Then he advised for people who would like to buy the opportunity. He carefully chose his first franchisee, trained them and made them sure they were fully up and running before going away overseas. The only thing he asked of them before he left was to make sure he was paid their monthly franchise payments on time. The new businesses, they were very successful and they all got very rich indeed. The businessman, however, never got paid the monthly franchise payments in accordance with the legal agreement. Eventually, he said to his managing director, go and remind them. They were very rude and they sent him away with a flea in his ear saying they had more important things to do than make payments to an absent owner. Didn't he know they were doing important work here? This particular parable comes after Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and in the days running up to his arrest, his trial, execution, and resurrection. So the timing of the telling of this parable and its setting in the events of the week can therefore be really quite precisely defined and understood. We have a lot of context that helps us understand what this parable is all about and why Jesus told it when he did. Now, again, this is something that we've heard in previous weeks. The traditional title of this parable is The Wicked Tenants. If I look in my NIV Bible, that's what it's called. Jesus tells the parable of the wicked tenants. And in Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel in my NIV translation, that's the little subtitle that goes above this passage. But, not surprisingly, I actually would like to suggest to you that maybe you could think of a different title for this parable. And the title that I would like to suggest, you maybe read it again with the fresh title in your mind's eye, is the parable of the vineyard owner and his son. And the reason I've changed that title is because it is clear when we look inside that it's the owner and his son are the heroes of the story and the meaning of the message. So let's have a little look at that context a little more. So Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was accompanied by a large crowd, waving palm branches, throwing their cloaks on the, on the ground for the donkey to walk over, and shouting out words like, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And at this point, Jesus enters Jerusalem and makes his way up the hill towards the temple. Now, to the religious leaders, the temperature of revolution is, as they would see it, hotting up. Why? Well, they know full well how Jesus' entry in those circumstances is a direct prophecy of 
the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9, which I'll read. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This entry of Jesus in this way is an unmistakable proclamation of kingship according to that prophecy. And a large number of people would perhaps see this moment as the arrival of a new national leader. Someone who could lead them to freedom from the domination of Rome. So the stakes, the chips on the table have got piled a lot higher now. And for them, the leaders, the risks are becoming really very extreme. They're actually really frightened about what might happen. But Jesus, rather than attacking the Romans at that point, does something else, even more provocative, as they would see it. Rather than lashing out at the Romans in some way, he causes a riot in the temple. He turns over the tables of the money changers, he sets all the sacrificial doves free, and he shoves the merchants out of the way, driving them out of the outer court. It's called the court of the Gentiles. Driving them out. He goes on a sort of rampage. And I think it's quite hard not to imagine that some of the followers who were with him join in. I don't think this was necessarily a one-man show at that point. You could imagine this, this is a big place. Don't think of these events just as some sort of scuffle in the street, outside a pub, for example. It's not that sort of thing. The temple complex is the most sacred religious site in the nation, it's the most sacred religious site in Jews' Jewish history. It's also a very big place. That outer court that you can see, which is the court of the Gentiles, is about 30 acres big. 120,000 square meters in new money. A typical football pitch is about 7,000 meters. So it's 15 football pitches big is that area. And it's got all those columns all the way around, and inside those columns are a series of gates which then descend into the lower part of the city. Now Mark, in his telling of these same events, in 11 verse 16, says that Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything into the temple court. Having ejected the money changers and those selling sacrificial animals, the entire temple's rituals of the day have ground to a halt. No one can get in or out of the inner area to the Holy of Holies or to the areas of sacrifice because the outer court is in, this sort of, it's in the control of Jesus and his followers who are not allowing anybody to carry anything. So they've occupied it, if you like, and they're temporarily in charge. Okay, let's try another image that maybe makes this event as remarkable as it is. Let me take you to this space. St. Peter's, not a square, a sort of circle. 
in Rome. We've all seen those sorts of scenes at various times on television. Thousands of people gather to watch maybe the Pope make an appearance from a window and give a blessing or whatever. This too is an immense space with columns all the way around. Interesting. Now just imagine the scene. The Pope is about to, the windows are about to open, the Pope is about to step out onto the balcony and give his address. And at that point, at the back there, a group, a large group of very rowdy people come in, somebody riding a, a donkey, everybody else waving and shouting and cheering and shoving the barricades out of the way, pushing the crowd in all directions, who get in a panic and scatter. And then, as the civil guard arrives, on motorbikes or whatever or whatever, this group set up barricades, won't let anybody in, and essentially camp in the middle. All the time, shouting, singing, waving flags, or whatever. Pope's address gets cancelled, and there's a sort of standoff for the rest of the afternoon. And then, for the rest of the day, this uneasy calm takes place. As dusk falls, the authorities think, right, now's our chance. We're a bit more dark. We'll get in and retake the square. But at that point, the group there disband. They evaporate. They go through the columns in all directions, disappear, go up the side streets and alleys. Mark says in 1119, when evening came, they all went out of the city. And Matthew adds in 21.17, And Jesus left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. So the police come in, the authorities try and take back the temple, and they're gone. Now then, if you're a member of the Sanhedrin, you are angry, you are frustrated, you are scared, you are thinking, well, what's going to happen next then? So it's no wonder they were on high alert the next morning. Is Jesus going to come back and do the self-same thing? Might he try and repeat it? We're not talking here just about civil disorder. In the Sanhedrin's eyes, this is blasphemy. This is blasphemy in the against the name of Yahweh in the temple, in the most holy place on earth. And Jesus does come back the following morning. But he doesn't cause a commotion. Matthew, in 21-23, says, and Luke says, he was just simply teaching in that outer court. Mark, in his telling, says he was walking about on his own. But they get to know, the chief priests and the elders get to know he's there. You can imagine, they've got the guards on high alert. If that man appears, we want to know, straight away. And they get to hear that he's there, and they rush to accost him. 
So again, let's get our imaginations in gear, because it's sometimes helpful to really try and picture what's going on, and then the story that is told makes more sense. So the Sanhedrin get the news that Jesus is back, and he's back in the court teaching and walking about, as if nothing had happened the day before. Now, they're going to get in a bit of a flurry now, in a bit of a panic, and it describes that the Sanhedrin engaged with Jesus in that outer court. I imagine a rather sort of a gaggle of the high and mighty rushing as fast as their dignity would allow across that very large temple courtyard to where Jesus is standing. Now, again, it's a very important little detail. In the Middle East of this time, nobody runs. You don't run. That would be very, very unseemly. In Middle Eastern culture, clothes are worn right down to the ground, and running would require you to hitch it up and run, which means your legs would be on view, and that is just not a good thing at all. So you don't run. You leave your gown down, but you walk as quickly as dignity would allow. And I've got this image of this gaggle of the high and mighty walking as briskly as they dare across this courtyard. Where is he? Where is he? Where's he gone? What's he doing? And they arrive, I would think, rather sort of flustered. And they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things, they say? Who gave you this authority? I don't think that question is simply aimed at what Jesus was doing at that particular moment, whether he was teaching or whether he was walking. I think they want to know, who gave you the right to do that yesterday, if you like? But Jesus now does something that he often does. He counters a direct question with another back at them. Tell me, says Jesus, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from men? Now that will throw the Sanhedrin into a complete turmoil. I can imagine them all talking and arguing all at once. The scripture actually hints at that. If we say it was from heaven, then why didn't we believe him? If we say it was from men, there's going to be another riot. And you can imagine, <laughs> all arguing at once. And eventually they say, I don't know what they're going to say. So they go back to Jesus and say, <clears throat> uh, we don't know. <laughs> Scripture's quite amusing, really. We don't know. And Jesus then says, he almost like he closes, I can't say pounces, but he closes on that indecision and says, well then, neither am I going to tell you by what authority I am doing these things. It's like a sort of standoff. Okay. Okay. But let me make one point. Jesus actually isn't simply interested in scoring nice debating points, much though we might like to think so. 
Jesus is very well aware what their question as to his authority is really getting at. What they're asking him is, who exactly are you? And it's in an answer to that question that he tells the crowd around him and the Sanhedrin a story. And he tells them the story of the vineyard owner and his son. So let's have a look at that. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it out to some farmers and went away for a long time. Did it go away for a long time? <laughs> Thank you. Did I do something there? <laughs> okay. <laughs> At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant. But that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. And the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, <clears throat> they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, God forbid. <clears throat> now, the Jews, or some of them, maybe many, would have found this parable in some ways familiar. It has some parables, it has, sorry, it has a parallel, sorry, to a parable, that's a mouthful, isn't it? A parallel to a parable that's told in Isaiah, chapter 5. And this particular parable often has a little heading called the Song of the Vineyard. Now, in that song, the owner plants a vineyard. He looks after it. But it doesn't, in this case, yield a good crop. And so he judges it a failure. And he digs it all up again. In Isaiah's story, the owner is seen to be God. The vineyard that doesn't flourish is Israel. I'll come back to that little bit of understanding later on. I want to talk a little bit more about the story, the story that Jesus told. Now, to our minds, we are all brought up in a Western education tradition, a Western way of learning, a Western way of hearing, a Western way of understanding. It's so familiar to us, we don't actually know that that's actually the, what's happening, that we're being shaped to some degree by the way we understand, the way we're taught to understand things. And to our minds, stories essentially are linear. 
they go from the beginning, once upon a time, to the end. And they all lived happily ever after. And the point of a story is often, or the denouement, as it might be called, is down the far end. So in this story, if we apply that mindset to it, that way of examining the story, what we get at the very end is in 20, verse 15 and 16. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill the tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's the end of the story. That's the point. That's why it has that title. The fate of the tenants who won't pay their rent. That seems to be a warning. That's what we need to remember. But there is actually another way of thinking about this story. It's an older way. In some ways, it's a better way. It's a deeper way. I want us to look not just at the story, the facts, the narrative. I'd like us, just for a moment, to look at the structure of the story. Sounds a bit learned, but just bear with me. It's not that learned. Jesus is telling this story using a particular form of rhetoric. Now, rhetoric is a skill, and it's a skill used to get your point across, to increase the power or the punch in what you're saying. And this particular rhetorical technique that Jesus is using has a name. This particular name is chiasmus. That's not a word I'd ever heard of before until I was looking into understanding this parable. So it's not something that I thought, oh yes, I've always known what that is. No, I didn't. I had to look it up. Chiasmus, just go back, make sure I get this right. In a chiasmus, the beginning and the end of a story, or a piece of text, they're like bookends or mirrors. They, they match one another. And they point inwards. So they're they mark the, the, the front verse and the last verse have a parallel one with another. Chiasmus takes its name from the Greek letter X, where the focus is right in the middle of the X. And that letter in Greek is called chi. Now let me give you a simple example of a chiasmus in modern speech. Uh, well, relatively modern. In this case, Benjamin Franklin. He was one of the founding fathers of the USA. And he, in what, he was a great uh, rhetoric master. And one of his sentences, often quoted, is, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. Chiasmus, pointing to the middle. It's a little short sentence. Each end points inwards. Jesus used this technique. He used it lots of times in little short sentences. The Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Is a, a nice little short chiasmus. Now, when you get a longer chiasmus, a longer piece, there is often something in the middle, the focus that the ends point at. And what we end up with then, let me just put those up for a moment. Getting carried away, what I wanted to say. So when, it's, when you use a longer piece, you often find something in the middle, which is the, the key point. 
and the opening and closing sort of focus on it. Now, again, biblical writing uses chiasmus a lot. You could go and find it in Genesis, in Ecclesiastes, in Isaiah, in Joel, Amos, Joshua. You find it in the Psalms. You find the Psalms often begin with a sentence and go back with a slightly different one at the end. You often find, you know, Israel is coming to a fatal end, and then that Jesus will rescue Israel from its disaster. So you get this top and tail effect in biblical writing. Now, in this particular parable, the opening statement is the renting out of the vineyard in verse 9. Its mirror at the other end is the giving of the vineyard to others. Just inside those sentences, you get verse 10 and 12, 10 to 12, the servants are sent and abused, and at the back end, the son is sent and killed. So those are all around the central verse. And the central verse, the point of the story using this rhetorical technique is this one. The owner said, what shall I do? I shall send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. So that sits at the very middle of this parable. And it contains the key message Jesus wants to share. This is the answer to the question the religious leaders were asking. Who exactly are you? I am the son whom the owner loves, and he sent me to you. Now, there's another, another layer to this that it's worth listening to or understanding. We need to listen to the story, again, through Middle Eastern culture both of the past and probably of the present day, where personal honour is held in the highest esteem. Being affronted, being uh, uh, offended is, 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 a, is a deep hurt to people. It's probably less so in our culture. It's very deep in Middle Eastern culture at the time. And the owner of the vineyard has been subjected to a sort of series of insults. Insult after insult, getting worse and worse. That's how Jesus has deliberately layered the story. The first servant is beaten and sent away empty-handed. The second isn't just beaten, but he's treated shamefully, it says, before being sent away empty-handed. Again, avoiding shame is another critical aspect of ancient culture. And for the, deliberate, for the tenants to deliberately do something to shame the owner's servant, and we're not actually told in what way. It could be they cut his be half his beard off, or they cut his clothes in half so he had to go back with his bottom on view. Something like that would have been profoundly shaming and insulting. 
So something like that is going on here. He didn't, they didn't just hit him and throw him out. Something else was added. The third servant isn't just beaten or shamed. They wound him. And he isn't just driven out. They throw him out on the street. So Jesus is ratcheting up the insults, one after the other, all after the other. And all those who are listening to this, they will undoubtedly be saying, well, what's he going to do now then? They are likely to be very, very incensed. So there's those three. And what does he do? What shall I do? Now, I don't know about you, I can imagine the crowd all going, oh, it's disgraceful, that's appalling, they should get rid of them, They'll chop their heads off, hang them up on the nearest tree. And Jesus reaches this sort of tipping point in the story, halfway through verse 13. What then will the owner do? Pause. Now, we can see it written down, we just, we just read it as a sentence. I don't think it's a sentence. I think there's actually quite a long wait there. There's a dramatic... So what's he going to do? <coughs> I'll send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him. Now, everybody standing around knows the owner has the right to go to the authorities to send an armed company of guards to storm the vineyard, to arrest everybody, to bring them to justice. Don't forget, an armed guard is going to be needed. In one of the versions, in Mark's version of this parable, the vineyard's got a wall all the way around and a watchtower. So the tenants inside the vineyard will be on the walls in the watchtower trying to defend it. They know that he's coming, or likely to come. But the owner just says this amazing thing. I will send my son whom I love. And his son is sent alone and unarmed to meet the men who clearly have no honor and no track record, and a track record of violence upon violence. You can imagine them when they hear this. He's going to what? He's doing what? That's ridiculous. It's like he's taken the whole world and he's turned it upside down. The parables all share this upside down focus. The value of the kingdom of heaven. In circumstance after circumstance, in story after story, Jesus sets off telling stories that are very familiar to listeners. He tells stories of ungrateful sons who run off to live a dissolute life, about losing your hard-earned savings somewhere around the house, of seeds that end up scattered in the wrong place, of workers desperate for a job waiting all day, of guests who snub invitations to special events, of people getting caught fiddling the books, and so on, and so on, and so on. We know the stories very well. But in every case, Jesus subverts those stories and their outcomes in order to highlight what? His grace and mercy. The upside-down kingdom of God. A kingdom he's announcing, a kingdom he's actually bringing into the present. And he's bringing it in his physical body. 
in the form of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Though nobody stood around him on that day knew that was about to happen. So there is no defending of honour. There's no initiating of armed recovery of property. No appeals to the judicial authorities. Just the sending of his son. It's completely at odds with the society around him. It's completely at odds with a law-based society where everybody expects an eye for an eye. Now let's go back to that parable. The parable of Isaiah. Now I mentioned in that parable that there were two elements. The owner and the vineyard. The owner is God and the vineyard is Israel. Now we've got some other people. Who are the tenants? And who is the son? Well, the tenants are the religious leaders. The very people whose questioning triggered the story. And the son is Jesus himself, standing right in front of them. Much loved by the father, unarmed and alone. Jesus has become a living parable right in front of their eyes. He stepped out of the story. He's now standing straight in front of them. It's because of God's authority that he stood there telling them the story. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells them repeatedly, is near. Here, he's barely a whisker away from them. They're sort of face to face. So, are the religious leaders going to give him the honour and respect that is rightly his? So that question in this parable now has this amazing double edge. What will the tenants do inside the story? What will the religious leaders do standing in front of him? And the answer comes quickly. When the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they threw him out and killed him. And I do not doubt that's exactly what the religious leaders were wanting to do. That's what's running in their minds at that very moment. How can they get him out of the temple? How can we have him killed, removed? How can we hang on to our leadership of the nation? How can we remain tenants of the vineyard? I am absolutely certain that's the soundtrack in their mind. But almost before the words are formulated in their minds, Jesus delivers this sharply worded warning. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Will he show mercy? The answer this time is simple and direct. He will come and he will kill the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Which is why everybody says, God forbid. Jesus is telling the religious leaders to their face that their minds are an open book. And this standoff ends with the words of verse 19. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for ways to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this against them, but they were afraid of the people. 
Now that begs one final question. Does the retribution of the owner upon the tenants indicate some sort of limit to the grace of God? Does the grace of God run out? I'm going to say to you unequivocally, no. No. How then do you reconcile these things? Between the ending of the parable at verse 16 and the confirmed decision of the rulers at 19 are two more little verses, which are like a little tiny parable all of their own. Jesus looks directly at them and asks, then what is the meaning of that which is written The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he's quoting Psalm 118 there. And he answers that question. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and he on whom it falls will be crushed. Now what Jesus is telling the people in that little parable is that the rejection of the Son of God has consequences in this life and the next. The son comes alone, unarmed. The forgiveness, the grace, the mercy of the owner are available to the tenants. They're available to everyone. They are gifts, free, unlimited. The pivot of the message. But gifts need to be received. And neither the tenants in the story nor the religious leaders standing before Jesus accept the offer. They say no. They are intent upon their own actions, come what may. And the cornerstone of salvation, the capstone of the arch, the Son of God, is then the stumbling block for many, both then and now. I'm going to conclude. I'm going to read you a poem. I'm writing a series of poems at the moment based on the Gospels. This one is called Stones. And it relates to this story. Stone-walled vineyard with stone-faced guardians, forgetful of the gift entrusted to their care, pouring forth the grapes of wrath upon God's chosen children, wrapped in strict observance of a stony heart religion. Prophets and messengers ignored, ostracized and stoned, until the very Son of God himself is killed, disowned. And so the least shall enter in, by grace and not by law, and they enjoy his vineyard, both now and evermore. For the stone that was rejected, this rock, on which we stand becomes the capstone of our faith to sit at God's right hand. This parable is first and foremost about the Son of God who comes alone and unarmed into this turbulent world, bringing the life and the grace of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And as children of God and messengers of the kingdom, our responsibility, like Jesus, is to go on sharing this saving truth of unlimited grace and mercy in an upside-down kingdom. 
It's an upside-down revolutionary truth. Let us, in the words of Jesus, at the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, go and do likewise. And not be surprised if, like the owner's servants, we often get a flea in our ear. 